It is a lovely day to go inside EMS, and I am your host, Chris Sabalero. This episode of Inside EMS is sponsored by ECHO. Core stethoscope technology by ECHO helps EMS providers make confident, split-second decisions in the most challenging environments by enhancing stethoscope sounds. Learn more at echohealth.com. That's E-K-O-Health.com. And my own .com person is here with me, K-E-L-L-Y Grayson.com. Welcome to Inside EMS once again this week, sir. Actually, I actually have, uh, or I had that as a, as a URL. Uh, I let it go a while back. Um, some realtor in California wanted to buy it. So really? So kellygrayson.com, you had it for real? Yeah. I had Kelly. Uh, oh, actually, I think I still do have kellygrayson.com. I don't have kelly.grayson, uh, uh but, uh, I've got emsguru.com too. You want to buy that? <laughs> emsguru.com. What are you going to do with it? I don't know. I just have it parked because they, you know, that my, my domain name provider, uh, uh, offered it, uh, offered a special on it. So, or it's EMS dot guru. I think it is. So I'm, I'm, I'm cool with that one. I'll use it for something one day. I got to tell you, I mean, you tell some riveting stories. Um, well, Hey, I'm a riveting kind of guy, <laughs> but so how was your Thanksgiving, man? You know what? I gave thanks. It was very, very uh, relaxing. And uh, to me, it was Thursday. I had a lot of work to do. And, uh, but it was, it was all right, man. How about you? Your first Thanksgiving home in a lot of years of not having to work since you're on the yeah. shelf for a couple more weeks. What's going on with that? Yeah. I'm, uh, it was, it was good Thanksgiving. Uh, thankful for, for a lot of things, other, uh, my health, most especially. Um, oh, I, uh, uh, I'm, I'm doing well, man. I, I was not ready to walk, uh, 12.4 miles in three days at the Texas CMS conference. I was, <laughs> I know I needed to ramp up my physical activity and get a little more, uh, exercise and build my stamina back, but that was, a that was too much too soon. Um, so I was, I was hurting those, the dogs were barking after walking that much at the Austin convention center, but we had a good time. We, uh, we, um, my lectures were, uh, were well-received, you know, the, the usual people held their lighters aloft and swayed rhythmically. Women threw their panties on the stage. Men bought me drinks, you know, the usual. Oh, I thought the men's were, men were throwing the panties. So I'm glad you clarified. That. <laughs> I get confused. So let's sometimes. go ahead and stop <laughs> right there. Let's stop right there before we get a little bit too deep in this, but you know, Kelly, there has been a resurgence of vasopressors in the career field for mm -hmm. treating shock. And it seems that it kind of comes in, it ebbs and flows, right? We're, we're yeah. back in the flow now, but, uh, so I guess first off, you know, uh, and this, and this discussion is really coming from a great article in EMS one by Jonathan Lee, the frontline farm and understanding pre-hospital vasopressors, dopamine, epinephrine, and norepinephrine. And I guess I'm going to kind of interview you and kind of talk about this from the standpoint of how vasopressors are working in shock. But it's kind of like, you know, kind of as we were talking in the pre-show, it's making a resurgence back in EMS. And, it, it you know, it's always been there, I think, that's helping uh, yeah. When we need to use it, I don't think we we've ever used it as well as we should. But give us just your overview of uh, vasopressors in the field and the value. You know, well, you, you know, so many people 
say, well, everything's old as new again and, and, uh, wait for the pendulum to sweep, swing back. Whatever we do, uh, now is, is going to be, uh, come back, uh, in, in a, a, a few years, but that's not necessarily the case. Uh, I think that as science emerges and as we learn more about, um, our practice and, and we get better data, uh, practices we may have abandoned in the past, um, we gain a better understanding of them and we find more refined uses. And that's what's coming around with vasopressors. Chris, you, you remember uh, the days when, when you and I were new medics and we used to say things like, leave a fed, leave them dead. Uh, and they also taught us to, to administer uh, three milliliters of isotonic crystalloid for every milliliter of blood loss. And we know now that that both of those statements are wrong. Uh, Levofed is a is a potent vasoconstrictor and and a good drug when used in the proper circumstances. Uh, and saline is not a catch all and and not a a uh, blanket treatment for hypotension and hypovolemia. So one of the things that that has come about in recent years is a resurgence of those vasopressors, kind of as a pushback to the, the protocolization, I guess you'd say, of, of sepsis care, because um, the, the sepsis uh, guidelines uh, and, and part of the, the, the uh, Affordable Care Act, uh, they, they actually um, reimburse based on your outcomes and how well you do things, performance-based uh, uh, reimbursement. And, and uh, many things have, have changed in, in hospital emergency departments to, uh, to, to mandate uh, sort of a standard treatment or a, or a treatment bundle for sepsis patients. One of those things was is uh, administer 30 milliliters per kilogram of isotonic crystalloid for your sepsis patients. And uh, that's not really the best approach. And a lot of clinicians push back against that. And they say, well, look, you know, um, <laughs> Do you realize how much hyperchloremic acidosis we're causing? How much we're we're uh, making people hypernatremic with that much fluid? You know, one liter of normal saline contains the same amount of sodium as thirty one ounce bags of Lay's potato chips, and uh, in many of these cases, these patients who are who are uh, hypotensive and and hypoperfusing, they're physically incapable of of increasing their cardiac output with a fluid bolus. They're, they're classified as non-responders. Over half of the people that we administer fluids to can't get better with fluids. So, yeah, but, I, so but, I think, but I think that that's what, where the challenge was here. Yeah. When we were starting, you know, give a fluid bolus before you start moving into the vasopressor. I mean, we, I mean, there's a couple of things, a lot of things that you talked about there that needs to be unpacked. The first yeah. off, is we were thinking that the salt would make a difference in the hypotensive patient mm -hmm. that would allow the blood pressure to increase, right? I mean, you think about it, that salt, you know, salt. Get a little, uh, diet, get a little osmotic pull. Exactly, the... right? I mean, so it makes sense, though. I mean, when yeah. white blood pressure is high, and I'm a high blood pressure kind of guy, especially after this show, you know, I know my blood pressure is high when I'm hitting to the urinal, you know, 14 times in an hour because my body is trying to kick out the salt that is raising, you know, that's trying to lower my blood pressure. So theoretically, when we're putting salt in, we should see an increase in blood pressure. And then the other thing that you said that I think is really interesting was the that this is really stemming from the treatment of septic shock. 
Mm-hmm. Paramedics around the United States back in the old days before electricity, we were not treating, <laughs> recognizing, and treating septic shock as no. it should. Rom yeah. Duckworth, uh, who's our colleague, did a great job of really bringing this to the forefront of folks uh, and working to uh, ensure that we can recognize septic shock and now, uh, of course, treat septic shock. But, uh, you know, we weren't recognizing these in the folks that we were taking to the hospital and getting a jump on their treatment. And, uh, you know, but this is where uh, the vasopressors really have kind of kicked back in. You know, when we see this and say, you know, it kind of ebbs and flows or however you put it, um, we just weren't doing a good job in this treatment. But I want to go ahead and take you to the next thought here, because when we think about the vasopressors, you know, we talk about dopamine, we talk about epinephrine. Mm -hmm. We talk about norepinephrine. I mean, these are all catecholamines and, you know, they have uh, generally the same physiological effect on the body, mm-hmm. but maybe you can kind of just talk a little bit about what vasopressors do. And yeah. I would ask you, I mean, cause you, you have the tendency of uh, talking at the high level. I would put this in a way that the uh, EMT could understand to give them a little background on this knowledge. Yeah. Well, the, the way I, the way I explain this to my EMT students is I talk about the cardiovascular triad uh, and, and the cardiovascular triad, you draw a triangle and the points of the triangle are pump pipes and fluid. And, and you make the point that no matter uh, th- that when a patient is hypoperfusing and they're hypotensive, the source, the reason for that hypotension is one of those three things, period, end of story. It is one of those three things. Either it is pump failure or insufficiency, and that could be rate or it could be contractility. It, the reason is a volume deficit. It could be blood or that could be other fluid, uh, or the reason is inadequate vascular tone. The pipes are too big, and and the the proper treatment of shock is to is to discern the source uh, and treat that directly. You're not going to help someone in pump failure, for example, by loading them with fluids. And and the folks in distributive type shock uh, often cannot compensate uh, and and increase their cardiac output with fluid boluses. And the the three vasopressors mentioned in the article, dopamine, epinephrine, and norepinephrine, are, they are catecholamines. They do work in similar fashion, but some are better than others. Dopamine, for example, uh, I remember back in the day, we were taught three dosage ranges for dopamine. You had a renal dose, an inotropic cardiac dose, and you have vasopressor dose. And as it turns out, there's no renal dose of dopamine. Uh, there's just... There's it's just inotropic, maybe a little, and then there's vasopressor. And, and the increase in renal function that we got when we administered dopamine was simply because of uh, increased vasoconstriction and inotropy, and we got better blood flow through the renal arteries, and the kidneys started putting out more fluid. Um, so, so there's no renal supporting dose of dopamine. And because the effects are so dose-dependent, we've kind of gotten away from dopamine and we carry dopamine in our bags, but we rarely use it. It's become one of those drugs that expires before we, uh, before we ever use it. Um, uh, here's a hint, kids don't use the brown dopamine in your bag. It's probably not good for the patient, <laughs> but we've moved to things like uh, epinephrine, norepinephrine, the old leave of fed and, uh, and some other antiarrhythmics that, that we haven't mentioned, phenylephrine uh, and even vasopressin in some cases. But one of the coolest new things is, is you don't have to have a pump to administer these anymore. 
Um, you didn't need to have that, a, you didn't need to have a pump to administer them in the first place. No, no, you didn't. But we, but in, in say cardiac arrest and that sort of. But um, but with when administering these drugs, the advent of push dose pressures has really changed the way, uh, or, or a, at least increased our our treatment arsenal for for shock. And, and not just uh, in, uh, for long-term management or, or for uh, set up a drip that's going to keep their pressure propped up and, and keep them vasoconstricted a little bit and compensating well for the next few hours or days, uh, we're looking at the next few minutes. One of the things I, I made, points I made in, in a couple of my lectures in Texas is that uh, one of the biggest predictors, one of the biggest predictors of post-intubation uh, hypotension and cardiovascular collapse is shock and hypotension at the time you intubate someone. And, and many clinicians are, when they're faced with a patient uh, that is hypotensive, uh, they'll, they'll resort to things like push dose pressures to, to bring their blood pressure up, get them perfusing a little bit better so that they can, they can withstand the change in intrathoracic pressure that comes with positive pressure ventilation. And they're not as likely to crash. Uh, so we here at, uh, at Acadian are starting to do push dose pressures as of November the 1st, I think was our, our first day to, uh, to use our new protocols. And I haven't had a chance to do it yet because I'm not at work. What is uh, the, uh, but what's the dose? It is, you take, um, now you're going to make me do math. That sucks, man. You know, give it, all right, here's what we do. Give we'll, it to me. I'll give it to me. I'll do the math. We it. take ep, it's one to 100,000 epinephrine. Okay. It's not one to 10,000. It's one to 100,000 epinephrine. Typically what we do, uh, the way we mix up a push dose uh, of epinephrine is we draw uh, through the stopper one milliliter of one to 10,000 epinephrine from our pre-filled syringes. Mm -hmm. uh, we just, we, we waste a milliliter of saline from a 10 milliliter saline flush. We pull up, uh, we replace that one milliliter with one milliliter of, of one to 10,000. So it's, one, from so it's the, one to one then. Yeah. Well, actually, well, the, the concentration, since it's even diluted even further is, is one to 100,000 instead of one to 10,000. Wow. Um, and, and, and we do that in a, in an IV push. And it works well. And is it, and is it a weight do, based? Is it a weight based, or is it just a bowl? It's it's only only we're doing it for adults right now, but we're not uh we're not uh, doing it for pediatric patients. Um, and it's uh you know it's well supported in the literature, and and there have yeah. been a number of clinicians and 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 progressive EMS and and flight uh, services that have been doing this as as a bridge uh, to to setting up a vasopressor grip. And while you're, while you're getting your epinephrine or your levofed or your, your phenylephrine drip set up, they'll do a push dose vasopressor to just prop up their blood pressure until those effects can, can kick in. And it works great from what I understand. All right. Well, let's go ahead and take our quick break. And then when we come back, I want to talk about a little bit more about how vasopressors work. And then I also want to talk about some of the complications of vasopressors. Uh, we'll talk about some of the signs and symptoms and uh, then we'll get up on our way. But Kelly, go ahead and hit us with the mid-show read. Love to. Talking about the echo core stethoscope. 
Core stethoscope technology by Echo with active noise cancellation and up to 40 times amplification helps EMS providers assess hard to hear heart, lung, and other body sounds and even the loudest situations. I've tested the Echo Core technology. I use an Echo Core Littman stethoscope every day, and I can tell you that it is a game changer. It will help you hear things that you didn't think were possible to hear, and you will love it if you try it. Learn more at echohealth.com, that's ekohealth.com, and use code EMS1 for $20 off. So before we went to break, we were kind of talking about how vasopressors work, and Kelly kind of gave us, you know, the overview of, of uh, you know, how uh, the vasopressors make a difference. You know, one of the things that you said, which was true, is we had a dopaminergic, we had a, a inotropic dose of... Um, of dopamine, but you made the comment about, and I want to understand it, uh, that there is no renal, there is no dopaminergic stimulation when it comes to dopamine. My understanding was, and it's been a bit, but my understanding was that the lower doses, you would increase blood flow to the spleen and kidneys. And this really kind of gave us that, uh, dopaminergic effect. So yeah, uh, just for anybody out there, if you can kind of check that for us, I think that that would be awesome. But one of the things that oh, we need- sure don't take my word for it. No, I, I mean, I, I mean, because you're, you have a difference than I do, and I don't have time to check yeah. on it right now. Gotcha. So we do want to make sure that we're given the right information, right? So gotcha. you have a you have a thought, I have a thought. You may 100% be correct. I'm just going from my, you know, my cobweb uh, memory that uh, it does increase blood flow to the clean spleen and yeah. kidney. But with that said. You know, so you kind of really made this a little bit uh, easy to understand, but I want to make it even easier. So when we talk about somebody that is having a challenge that we may need to give uh, epinephrine, norepinephrine, or uh, dopamine, you know, let's talk about a hose, right? So we're out Mm -hmm. on the street, we have a hose in our hand, and you don't have a sprayer on the hose, right? The the water is just coming right out of that hose. And it's just kind of drooling out like Kelly does on a Saturday night at the Doolin Pianos <laughs> down there in Austin, Texas. And then we need to get some pressure. And what mm-hmm. we do is we put our thumb over that hose and now we get a little bit uh, tighter spray. We get a little yeah. bit more focused spray. Well, think about this in the standpoint of the, uh, you know, the veins, right? So they're big. Mm-hmm. And the blood is just kind of drooling out like Kelly Grayson does on a Saturday night at dueling pianos. And then the thumb is going to be the vasopressors, which are going to make that vein smaller, which mm-hmm. will allow the blood to pump through there more efficiently and more effectively. And, and these are the alpha results that happen from yeah. the vasopressors, right? So yeah. when and when we think about this from the standpoint of how much we give, it is going to now open that hose uh, a little bit, or it's going to open it to a mid range, or it's going to open it, uh, you know, or leave it the way that it is. And what this is supposed to do is increase the cardiac output that will allow the heart to contract a little bit easier Mm -hmm. and allow blood flow to increase to the organs. Mm -hmm. And hopefully that's a little bit easier to kind of get, but that's how I've always remembered. That's how I've always taught it to my EMTs and paramedics. Yeah. You know, I, I teach, I, I teach these cardiovascular parameters in, in terms of relationships and, and each keys on the other. Um, your, your preload is, is determined 
by your your venous constriction. Uh, and and I lot and, and I, I hold up a balloon. I squeeze in one end of the balloon. The other end of the balloon gets bigger. And I say, okay, you know, all right. If this this one end of the balloon is your venous system, um, if I decrease the size of the venous system, well, guess what? More more blood enters your heart uh, during diastole. Um, so that's your preload. And your preload uh, times your cardiac contractility is your stroke volume. And your stroke volume times your heart rate is your cardiac output. And your cardiac output times your systemic vascular resistance, your, your afterload, your arterial resistance determines your blood pressure. Um, and when one of these things is insufficient, the other has to compensate to, to maintain adequate cardiac output. The problem is, is people have underlying conditions. They take medications that inhibit their ability to compensate. You've got grandma taking a beta blocker. And her heart rate can't speed up uh, and her contractility can't increase because she's on low pressure for her blood pressure. So when she's volume depleted, she 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 lacks those those abilities uh, to to increase her hang on. contractility. Hang on, hang on, yeah. hang on. I think what you did was really important. And we've got to be able to understand the importance of how the medication is affecting. So mm -hmm. you just brought in this beta blocker and you're going to kind of change the direction of this of this discussion a little bit, you need to break that down just a little we'll bit do. easier. So gotcha. when we talk about this from the beta blocker side and how it's affecting um, what's going on inside the body, hit them from that side, because you, you bring up a really important point here. Yeah. Well, well, th these catecholamines uh, affect our body by, by either by stimulating the sympathetic nervous system, our fight or flight response. And uh, they, they operate on cellular receptors called alpha and beta receptors. And the way I teach this to my EMT students is, is uh, alpha arteries. You have alpha receptors and arteries and when stimulated uh, an uh, alpha receptor will cause that, that area to constrict um, beta one. You've got one heart and that's where you find beta one receptors in, in your heart and they stimulate the heart rate and contractility and beta two, you have two lungs. And beta and two young two lungs, uh, two ureters, uh, and that sort of thing. And beta two receptors are found in the in the cells of smooth muscle, uh, and when stimulated, cause them to uh, relax and dilate. So you get bronchodilation from beta two receptors. And and the way I explain the the interrelationship between these things is that the parasympathetic and the sympathetic nervous system are in balance. And the, the sympathetic nervous system is the gas, parasympathetic nervous system is the brakes. If you want your car to go faster, you got two choices. You can press down on the gas or you can take your foot off the brake. Either thing is going to make the car go faster. And conversely, if you want your car to slow down, you can put your foot down on the brakes, the parasympathetic nervous system, and, or let off the gas, the sympathetic nervous system. So when my students understand it that way, they realize that, that these systems trying to, to remain in balance, that homeostasis we, we teach from, from early on in pathophysiology, uh, that's how it applies. And when we, we try to manage long-term diseases like hypotension, we take away some of these compensatory mechanisms to maintain that homeostasis. And the body can usually maintain it somewhat until some outside event occurs, like you lose a liter of blood on the ground, or you get a raging systemic infection and bacterial endotoxins and, and histamine release cause your container to dilate massively. 
Um, and this is really easy to under, to, to explain to firefighters. You say, look, if you've got a closed system of pump pipes and fluid and the pumps run at the same RPM, you got the same amount of fluid, but all of a sudden the hose is twice as big. What happens to the pressure in the system? And they'll all say, you know, nod knowingly and say, oh, well, yeah, it's, it's going to go down. I said, well, all right, what can you do to bring the pressure back up? And they said, well, you can speed up the pump. Yep. That'll work. Or, you can get the, you can decrease the diameter of the hoses. Ah, yeah, that'll work as well. Um, or if there's a leak in the hose, you plug the leak and the pressure goes back up and that sort of thing. So you put it in terms that they can understand, yeah. but, but we I make these good. things about catecholamines uh, more difficult to, to understand than they should be. Yeah. Um, and they work extremely well when fluid is not your answer. So I want to, I want to touch on something just really quick. I like how you said that. And I've never heard it before. Beta one, one heart, beta two, two lungs. Let's put this in the context of when somebody's in anaphylactic shock. So we know that something's been introduced to the body. It's causing mm -hmm. some challenges. And usually what is it going to affect the most is your breathing. It's yeah. going to affect your lungs. These are the beta two stimulation that leads to bronchodilation, right? So I really loved how you kind of gave that to them in a nutshell to say uh, beta one, one heart, beta two, two lungs. And you think about it in that context of anaphylaxis, what is it really affecting? Well, it, yeah. it's affecting the peripheral circulation as well, because usually we'll see modeling on the face or we'll see, uh, uh, you know, we'll see challenges in the uh, uh, you know, the, uh, extremities. And that was one of the things I never really understand. And I mm -hmm. always thought about was we would give sub Q epinephrine in the arm when somebody was in anaphylaxis, anaphylaxis, but that blood has now left the arms to go to the core. So they're protecting the heart. And then usually when we got something else to work, the Benadryl or the corticosteroids, now, all of a sudden, they started to shake uncontrollably because the blood's <laughs> coming back into the extremities, and now the epinephrine is kicking into the system. Yeah. So I never really understood that, and I would get in arguments all the time with uh, doctors and such, but that's not what we're talking about, so I digress. But yeah. let's go ahead, Kelly, and, and kind of switch gears a little bit, and I want to really kind of talk about the potential complications of vasopressors. Yeah. And when we think about this from, from that standpoint, when we start to give vasopressors to people, it's important that we monitor their blood pressure because it's not like fluid yeah. in fluids. As we mentioned earlier in the show, we got our fingers crossed and we're hoping we don't yeah. have to give vasopressors, but as we know, hope isn't a strategy, but one of the best practices that we need to do now is when we start to give vasopressors, dopamine, epinephrine, and so forth. We've got to be able to ensure that we're monitoring the blood pressure mm -hmm. and we're using infusion pumps. I got to tell you, yeah. I said this a long time ago that pumps make paramedics lazy because we didn't have to remember how to do drug dosages. That is my dinosaur way of thinking. But now as I they disagree, those, but I'm glad you caught up. <laughs> but I think that now we have gone to a point where the pumps have become a, um, uh, a real resource to us yeah. that we don't have to worry about the drug math in our head. So, yeah. but that was, again, you know, I took pride in being able to calculate dopamine. It was something or calculate anything that I had to give through the drip set. And, uh, but with that said, we've got to be able to check the blood pressure. We've got to be able to use infusion pumps and we've got to be able to ensure 
that we are paying special attention mm-hmm. to those patients when they're on vasopressors. What do you got on the subject? Well, um, the reason that back in the day we said leave a fed, leave them dead is because we treated it like, like saline, we, like we treat saline now as, as a catch-all treatment for, for uh, a variety of, of different etiologies of hypotension. And when you say leave a fed, leave them dead, it, the, the point was is that it was such a potent vasoconstrictor that it, it often vasoconstricted uh, organs that you didn't want to, to inhibit blood flow to, uh, and, and they, they wound up with renal and mesenteric, uh, uh, dysfunction and, and that sort of thing because of the, the massive vasoconstriction. But there are times when that is necessary. And, uh, like any drug, none of these drugs are benign. They're, they're very potent, potent medications. Obviously you don't want to give, uh, something to say epinephrine to someone who is in heart failure, for example. You don't want to give epinephrine uh, or norepinephrine to, to someone who is hypotensive because of heart failure, because all you're doing is you're giving that weak, uh, that weak heart more work to do. Uh, it's not uncommon, by the way, for folks in, in, in heart failure to get uh, an inotropic agent like dobutamine and then a vasodilator to, uh, to, to give that heart a, a ease of workload on it a little bit. Um, they increase its contractility, but give it less systemic vascular resistance to work against. But all of these drugs have their, their indications and their contraindications. And we're, and the more we learn scientifically, the more we refine those indications and contraindications. Uh, you mentioned epinephrine and how effective it is for, for anaphylaxis. Um, the drugs that don't work for anaphylaxis are our corticosteroids and Benadryl and, and, and all this kind of stuff. Not for anaphylaxis. Uh, the people, people die from anaphylaxis, not because um, the, uh, of those drugs. That they die because we didn't administer epinephrine in a timely fashion. But, you know, that's, that's neither here nor there. Um, we, we don't want <laughs> You hold off on epinephrine and anaphylaxis and, and try Benadryl instead, and you wind up with a patient that dies, but with stable cell membranes. So um, it's really not a desirable outcome. But there is plenty to be learned about these vasopressor drugs and how they can help with non-responders to fluid therapy. Um, and, and we can we can talk uh, about how we identify a non-responder versus a responder in a future podcast. But do some research on push dose pressors, things like epinephrine, norepinephrine, phenylephrine, um, and, and even vasopressin. And let us know what you think at the show at ems1.com. Tell us what your protocols are like and what's been your experience with them if you're using them in your system. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes. And for myself and co-host Chris Cevallero, thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. We're going to catch you guys next week. 